Welcome to this Reactive Virtual Conference. My name is Sean Goulding Carroll. I'm a journalist covering transport and environment issues, and I'll be the moderator for this discussion. So today's event is supported by the Environmental Defense Fund and is titled Decarbonizing Shipping, What Role Can Climate Labels Play? You're all very welcome, and uh, thank you for joining me online. Um, just to note that our Q&A session later will include questions from our viewers. So you're warmly encouraged to submit your questions through Slido using the hashtag CII. Well, Europe's transport sector is undergoing an environmental revolution as the EU's target of reaching carbon neutrality by 2050 obliges deep emissions cuts across industry. Transport has traditionally been one of the most difficult sectors to cut emissions from, with CO2 output continuing to rise even as other sectors' emissions fall. To reverse this trend, lawmakers have turned their regulatory gaze to various transport modes, walking the difficult tightrope of reining in emissions without hampering the mobility of people and goods. In the maritime sector, which is responsible for almost 3% of emissions globally, this has taken the form of a new law that requires ships to use an increasing percentage of low-carbon fuels. The maritime sector was also added to the EU's carbon market, the emissions trading system, forcing shippers for the first time to pay for their carbon pollution. But of course, the maritime sector extends far beyond Europe. And at the level of the UN's International Maritime Organization, or IMO, measures are also being put in place to incentivize cleaner shipping. One such measure is to assign ships with a rating based on their carbon intensity using a scale running from A to E. Known as the Carbon Intensity Indicator, or CII rating, this scale is seen as a means to encourage greater environmental efficiency. But proponents say that more can be done with the label to incentivize cleaner shipping, such as restricting access to European ports to ships with a certain climate rating. So today we'll be discussing the decarbonization of the maritime sector with a particular focus on the role climate labels can play in, in guiding us to a cleaner shipping future. Before we continue, um, I'd also like to address an issue regarding the lineup of speakers. Um, you may have noticed from the program uh, that all of today's speakers are male, um, which of course isn't what we aim for. Um, in this case, Euractiv's events team reached out to several uh, female speakers, but unfortunately those speakers were not able to join today's debate. Um, Euractiv does try to have a gender balance in each event, and we apologize for not achieving that uh, in this case. Um, with that said, I'm still very pleased to discuss this, in, this issue with the panel of experts whom I have uh, the pleasure of introducing to you now. I'm delighted to be joined by Timothée Noël, a policy officer with the European Commission's Directorate General for Climate, Daniel Barcarolo, Head of Regulation with Maersk McKinney Muller Centre for Zero Carbon Shipping, and Panos Spiliotis, Senior Manager for EU Transport with the Environmental Defence Fund. Um, 
Gentlemen, thank you for joining me. Uh, just another note that unfortunately, Ricardo Batista from DG Move was called to a council meeting, so he is unable to join us this morning and he sends his apologies. So to kick off, um, I will invite each panelist to provide a short opening statement of just a couple of minutes, which will be followed by our Q&A session. Um, so firstly, I would like to give the floor uh, to Timothy Noel. Um, Timothy, the floor is yours. Thank you, Sean, for the introduction and good morning to all participants. And thank you for the invitation to this interesting event. I have an echo. I don't know if I'm the only one to hear it. Could you please confirm, Sean? Um, for me, the sound is fine, so feel free to continue. Okay, thanks. So, um, uh, as a general introduction, and before I think diving into the topic of uh, carbon intensity indicators or climate labels, as you uh, uh, define them, I thought it would be good to stress again um, the overall policy context and, and remind the audience about the encouraging policy development that took place this year, both at the European and at the global level. I mean, if we start at the global level, and you quickly mention it uh, in your introduction, uh, the revised IMO GAG strategy, which was reached in July, is an important milestone. Uh, it really is a right step in the right direction. And it's now very important, it's essential that we start implementing as soon as possible. We need to agree at IMO collectively on the specific measures that will allow the sector as a whole to reach net zero emissions by 2050, which is an ambitious objective. And we also need to ensure that we have the right policy framework in place to achieve uh, the trajectory that was also set in the revised strategy, so with indicative check checkpoints for 2030 and 2040. And for that, uh, we need all type of measures. We, we will need to count on the results uh, on the short-term measures that typically includes the carbon intensity indicators, so those climate labels, but also the EXI. And, um, and of course, uh, uh, complemented by the very much awaited mid and long term measures that need to be agreed and put in place as soon as possible. And that should include a GAG fuel standard and a carbon price mechanism. So I think when we're speaking about CII and climate labels, we also need to ask ourselves what could they do in order to help the sector achieve the targets that were set in the revised IMO GAG strategy. Now, at European level, as many of you uh, might know, this year has been also a special year as a number of new EU policies have been approved uh, to ensure that the shipping sector contributes its fair share to our EU climate effort. And these uh, new policies were part of the Fit for 55 package. And things are going uh, pretty quickly. Uh, since uh, now in three weeks' time from now, the EU will be uh, the first jurisdiction in the world to put a price signal uh, on uh, emissions from the sectors to drive decarbonization of shipping in line with the polytopase uh, principle. The uh, extension of the emission trading system to maritime uh, will make uh, energy, energy efficiency investments 
more attractive uh, uh, for companies, whether they are technical uh, improvement or operational improvement. Um, it will also reduce the price gap between fossil fuel uh, and alternative fuels. And it will also come with funding opportunities, notably through the Innovation Fund. And uh, in parallel to the uh, extension of the emission trading system uh, to uh, maritime, the uh, EU has also adopted a specific regulation, so namely the fuel EU maritime regulation, but also the alternative fuel infrastructure regulation to create all the conditions that are necessary to support the development at scale of the market of alternative fuel and the use of onshore power supply. So in this context, as you might imagine, uh, the priority uh, is clearly for the moment to ensure uh, that uh, we have all the rules set in place in order to guarantee and ensure the swift and thorough implementation of these new policies at European level uh, in order to uh, improve and start uh, the decarbonization and accelerate the decarbonization uh, of the sector. So these are the, 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 the key aspects that I wanted to highlight before starting uh, discussing more in details about climate tables and CI high. Thanks. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, you mentioned a number of measures there. Hopefully we'll have time to delve into them during our discussion today. Um, I'll now hand over to Daniel Barcarolo. Um, Daniel, your opening remarks, please. Yeah, uh, first of all, thank you for the opportunity to come here and discuss. Um, it's a very relevant topic for us to discuss the CII. And thank you for uh, Timothy for the introduction on the uh, wider scope of regulations that we have at play right now. Um, where can I start? I think um, the CII has been here for us very important for, uh, I would say, for two years more or less. Uh, because we're ending in like uh, 2023 and we started to discuss CII and EXI and EDI and all the other regulations in the center already in 2022 before they were enforced. And uh, clearly, uh, I think the CII has brought a lot of uh, good things to the industry um, because uh, it has raised the debate in a way. It has created this standardized uh, way to look into uh, carbon intensity at least it has created a common language uh, we can all we all know at least I hope that everybody knows about the CI what a means what e means uh, sometimes a means good sometimes a could mean something that is not so good and on the other hand as well for the e rated vessels so uh, I think overall the the CI has created this really really nice uh, a discussion around the carbon intensity. Uh, we have been seeing uh, not only uh, the ship owners, but our ship operators and the cargo owners uh, bringing the CII to discussion, financiers bringing the CII to discussion. So I think that uh, this, uh, this momentum around uh, the CII that the CII has created is quite good, good and we need to leverage on it. Of course, a uh, bad thing is about the CII or uh, things that need to be fixed around the CII. Uh, I think uh, there has been sufficient communication out there uh, both at IMO or uh, in the press about, uh, you know, things that the CII sometimes are, is, is lagging or are not promoting, is not promoting correctly. Uh, and I think we should take uh, take the opportunity of the discussion that we have around the CII to, to bring a positive momentum to try to fix the CII in a good way. I think uh, 
we have this opportunity, we know the opportunity towards 2026, uh, where by, by when the CII needs to be revised. And we have a project ongoing here in the center by which we are trying to collect as much data as possible through our partners and, you know, and the industry to try to build on a few hypotheses. Uh, we have been working with the metric, we have been working with fleet approach, we have been working with you know, many other topics to try to, to come up with suggestions to make the CI even better than what it is. Um, I'm, I'm very happy to discuss uh, the CI today with all of you. And I think that the debate around the CI has become even more important with the revised strategy that Timothée raised today. Uh, because uh, I think now we could think about the CII as, as, a, as a policy that is there, is active, the industry is used to it, and we need to enhance the CII in order to bring the, the IMOGG strategy towards, uh, towards uh, you know, to be achieved. Uh, so right now, you know, of course, we have the 40% carbon intensity reduction, which has been used in the past to guide the CII developments. This 40% carbon intensity reduction by 2030 is still there in the IMOGG strategy, but we have additional uh, uh, goals in the IMOGG strategy. We have the 5 to 10% uptake of, uh, of fuels or energy, and we have the 20 to 30% checkpoint. So I think uh, these additional items in the strategy, I think, you know, could be used to give more strength to the CII. Of course, people say that we're going to have the midterm measures into place. We have DTS, we have the TUU, and all of these is complementary. Yes, they are. Nonetheless, I think that the, the midterm measures will need to be developed at the same time as the CI is developed. So we will not have the luxury, I think, as, as an industry, to wait until the midterm measures are fully designed so that we can think about the CII. So I think we need to put pressure to to put all levers on to, to on the, all the policies that we have into, into, in, the, in the making or the ones that are active to drive the transition of shipping. So I'm, I'm glad to, to take part of this panel to discuss uh, the questions and, and, and that's it for my side as an introduction. Thank you. Um, you mentioned the CII has raised the debate and created a common language, but you also mentioned some challenges. So I look forward to exploring that more with you shortly. Um, so last but certainly not least, I'll now give the floor to Panos uh, Spiliotis of the Environmental Defense Fund. Uh, Panos, you have the floor. Thank you, Sean. Uh, and I'm also delighted to be part of this panel um, this morning. Um, so the EU, to start with the EU, will soon implement its Fit for 55 package for shipping. The EU ETS and Fuel EU are both landmark achievements. Uh, no other region uh, has done anything equivalent. They will help raise revenues for green shipping uh, and will gradually make green fuels the default choice for ships. And green e-fuels, uh, including e-methanol and e-ammonia, will come to replace today's marine fuels. Uh, at Environmental Defense Fund, we have been working on green e-fuels for a few years now. Uh, and the industry is also getting serious uh, about this pathway. Nonetheless, uh, ships burn uh, 300 million tons of oil every year. Um, so producing an equivalent amount of green fuel uh, will actually take uh, a major industrial transformation. So at the same time, shipping needs to be maximizing efficiency to lay the ground for its energy transition. So we have to make the existing entire shipping fleet leaner and greener. 
Good news is that ships could achieve significant reductions by installing energy saving technologies um, and greening their operations. These measures can also save ship owners as well as cargo owners um, a serious amount of money. So it's all good news. Uh, and the global regulator and the other panelists have touched on this, uh, IMO, has also raised its ambition last summer in MEPC 80. We have a really strong new strategy. And the first indicative checkpoint uh, says that we will aim for 20 to 30 percent emissions reductions in 2030 from a 2008 base. So that's ambitious. Um, <clears throat> what we would like to throw into the equation or propose is that the CII, or the carbon intensity indicator, is the best tool at our disposal to achieve these reductions. And, and at the very least, an essential part of the mix um, of, of our basket of measures to achieve these reductions. It was endorsed by IMO's 175 states. So I think that's what perhaps uh, Daniel meant when he called it a common language. It was something that was uh, debated at length at IMO uh, when it was adopted in, in 2021 as a way to judge and improve the climate performance, uh, the tank to wake climate performance of large ships. So as of next year, uh, all large ships will have a grade uh, from A to E. So in one sense, it is a climate label. So we have advised IMO to publish every ship's grade because that way those who uh, might be looking for ways to make uh, sustainable decisions, including investors and, and cargo owners, can do so um, you know, more easily. And we want the EU, uh, during the IMO debate that will ensue, to keep up the pressure on this point. So this is something important. It is a label. It is helpful information to the market. But perhaps more importantly, CII is also a policy measure uh, ships are expected to achieve a C grade. Uh, but there remains uncertainty around the extent uh, and the seriousness of CII enforcement uh, when you look at the global landscape. So <clears throat> um, you know, that's, that's something that really needs to be looked at uh, during the IMO review. And that's something that any state or region um, can do better um, already on today as we speak. Analysis that we commissioned showed that raising EU-related ships to an A grade would lead to a 30% emissions reduction. But even raising them from the worst, um, in fact, non-compliant categories, D and E upwards, comes with uh, benefits as well, because the grades get more stringent with every year that passes. So here we think the EU and member states could do more. Uh, and, and we can talk about, you know, what form that could take. You know, we're not uh, wedded to, to any particular idea. Um, but for example, they could, through requirements, uh, bring in policies that help to raise ships to the A grade and B grade um, that is in line with IMO's 2023 strategy. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, well, let's now move on uh, to the question and answer portion of the event. 
um, our wider discussion. Um, just a reminder that you can, uh, for those uh, watching this, you can submit your questions through Slido uh, using the hashtag CII. Um, you should see uh, a QR code on your screen. Um, Panos, maybe I can start with you. Um, so you mentioned having a database, a global database of ATE ship grades, um, and this would help, uh, in your opinion, accelerate shipping decarbonization. Can you tell us how this would, do, would be done in practice and how this database can help accelerate shipping decarbonization? Yeah, I mean, there was a, a proposal already in the last uh, MEPC to create uh, a more transparent way to access um, some of um, the data, you know, the wealth of data that, that lives um, within IMO, so the DCS, and specifically those parts that help you um, derive what uh, ships uh, grade are. And, and this was, uh, I think this led to an interesting discussion. Uh, the European Union was uh, clearly uh, in favor, um, but there was no final decision made. So I think this could be a very useful thing to do because if you know what uh, grade ships or what is the uh, efficiency, how green the ships are within the fleet of a company or um, a, a cargo owner or a retailer that wants to um, move their goods around the world sustainably, then one of the things they could easily do is just avoid some of the worst, the most polluting ships. But they need to have access to the grades to be able to do that. Um, there are some other ways. For example, uh, BIMCO, the association, proposed um, a draft contract, basically a charter party, that would allow um, um, a, you know, a contract to be established conditionally on, on, on the, the ship achieving certain grades, which is great. Um, that's that's also a really good development, and I hope cargo owners will um, will take that on board. But having a publicly accessible um, database that can also be accessed by researchers and um, NGOs and anyone who's interested in the climate performance of ships would be ideal. So we look to the next uh, meetings of uh, MEPC and IMO to make progress on that, and we hope that the EU delegations um, will not give up on this point as as IMO agenda as the IMO agenda moves into um, the, the basket of measures. Thanks, well, uh, Timothy. I'd like to get your um, opinion on this as well. Is it realistic and desirable? And is it something that the e EU is going to push for this uh, database? I think in, in uh, general, um, disclosing information about uh, <clears throat> environmental performance of ship of assets is is always welcome. And, uh, and transparency is important to address the lack of information, to stimulate change in, in, in behaviors, in investments. <clears throat> and that's really the approach we've been following at the EU level. Um, we have uh, the EU monitoring, reporting and verification regulation uh, that uh, is, uh, has been put in place in 2018. And all the data collected from this regulation is available uh, online. And so you, you have really information per ship. You can see already now the uh, emissions 
attached to every ship that uh, calls a port uh, in the EU. So transparency is really uh, uh, something that that is behind uh, the uh, EU policy. Uh, and we indeed hope that uh, we will have also more transparency uh, at a global level, uh, but we also know that it's a difficult uh, uh, discussion. Uh, but we see, we see uh, many merits huh, of, of having more transparency. Uh, more transparency could also, as it was said by Panos, it could help researchers also better you know, understand uh, the impact of CI High, uh, how to uh, improve uh, the system. Um, so it's, it has many merits. Um, such a database, you know, publicly available database with all rating of ships uh, has not been proposed by uh, the last uh, MEPC. Uh, the the uh, uh, interesting development that was proposed is at least to give the possibility for companies that want to make their data publicly available, so to have the, those data uh, then publicly available. Meaning that if shipping company uh, that are committed towards decarbonization wants also to be transparent, they will have the ability to agree for to publish and disclose uh, their uh, their information. Thank you. Um, well, I mean, Daniel, you've heard now from Timothy and from Panos. Um, what's your opinion on uh, this database? I think that as soon as data becomes public, people start to start to to be more uh, worried about how they collect the data, how uh, how precise the data is, and as uh, and then they try to to work around the data to make it look better. You know that's that that's a natural uh, consequence when the the data becomes public, and the UMRV has created this precedence of of and that Timothy highlighted too, of making or showing at least that collecting the data and transparently making that data public can be done uh, and it can happen. You know, anyone can uh, can go and download the UMRV data and have a look into the fuel consumption from uh, ships sailing into and outside, I mean, inside EU to EU and out, uh, from EU. But uh, it's also important to add to the discussion of data uh, availability or transparency, the uh, granularity of data. Uh, I think there's a difference between uh, the DCS, which is a data collection system for the IMO, and the UMRV. The UMRV is more granular in data. You can actually see, you know, uh, the emissions in port stays, the emissions in uh, in different types of voyages, outside, inside. Uh, so we have much more granularity in the UMRV. And the DCS currently doesn't have that kind of granularity. Uh, so I think at the same time that we discuss uh, Availability of the data to the public is important to have the granularity of the data. And why is that important? It's because sometimes you might have a ship that, uh, uh, that is actually efficient uh, while sailing, very efficient, but has, uh, can have a bad rating because of long port stay, because of whatever circumstances make, uh, make it, I mean, as a requirement for the ship to, to, to be there at anchor and then stop there and then just burn fuel for, for waiting. And it's not uh, uh, ultimately his, his fault. So a granularity of data will be able to, 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 to provide also what is happening with the ship as well. And that's uh, another discussion and another uh, uh, point that needs to be brought to the IMO. And I think that the EU has been raising the, uh, the awareness of, of the need for more granularity in the data. 
And data becomes even more important because of what has been highlighted by, by panels and, and, and Timothée in the beginning, we're going to have other measures coming into play. We're going to have the meter measures. We're going to have a potentially GEG pricing. We're going to have potentially a GFS, which is like a GEG standard, like to, to, to promote a sustainable marine fuels for the industry. And more data will be required to be submitted to the IMO and then maybe more transparency as well on all those data. So I think data, the, the discussion around data is, is, is quite important uh, to make it public. Yes, uh, because this in itself would bring more awareness of to the shipping industry. As soon as the data becomes public, people can start to be uh, more careful what uh, they are they are measuring and what they are disclosing, what they are submitting. And it goes all entire the chain, you know, the verifiers will be more potentially more careful about how they verify the data and so on and so forth. And but at the same time, we need to discuss about the granularity and then the, the, the need for more, even more granularity because of the CII and the upcoming measures that are that are in, in discussion right now, the, the, the midterm measures. So, um, yeah, that's the point I wanted to make. Thank you. Um, well, Panos, you heard uh, from Daniel that there's a need for greater granularity in the data. Um, this feeds into uh, a wider discussion about potential concerns with the CII. Um, that, you know, do the metrics accurately ref reflect uh, the environmental performance of ships? What would you say about this need for, for more specific data? And also, maybe if you could also address some of the um, more negative takes towards the CII. Yeah, sure, uh, Sean. Um, well, you know, no metric is perfect, uh, and um, you know, CII uh, is based on this AR um, formula that uh, uses the, um, the the tonnage, the capacity of the ship, rather than the the cargo carried. And I think this has been um, a subject of discussion. Um, I think you know what matters here is that this debate already happened. Um, at IMO leading up to the adoption of CII in 2021. And uh, obviously, you know, you can talk about shipping metrics until hell freezes over. Um, they, they have advantages and, and disadvantages. Um, but, uh, and, and it's also important to take into account that IMO has agreed on a series of correction factors and guidelines to improve on the uh, original version of the CII that was adopted. So, you know, they were continuing to talk about these things until last summer. Um, so it's, it's um, a living metric that's being improved. Now, you know, there are those who say that um, we really should be using uh, EOI that focuses on the, the efficiency, sorry, the carbon intensity of, of uh, the, the cargoes carried uh, and perhaps that's a way forward in the future, but that shouldn't stop us from taking action to uh, improve the, um, the CII of uh, vessels today as it is defined today. Thank you. Uh, Timothy, um, just uh, following up on that, um, you've heard that there are uh, some criticisms of the CII. Um, Panas has also said that, you know, you can indeed continue to talk about metrics forever without making progress. Where does the commission stand on this? Do you see it as a, as a valuable metric or do you also recognize that there are problems with the CII? I think <clears throat> um, we, we need to be clear that 
uh, CII are not, you know, subjective. Uh, the value, uh, the achieved CII value is just the result of a simple division. It's the emissions emitted by the vessels divided by the transport work, assuming uh, the carrying capacity uh, of the vessel, so not the actual mass transported by the vessel. So it has it has some limits and it needs, when, when you look at a CII value, you need to keep in mind the equation uh, that you have behind the indicator, but per se the value is not wrong. It's it's always the emissions divided by uh, the maximum transport work based on on the capacity of the vessel. So um, I think that that's important to to keep that in mind. I mean, CII are based on AER on CGD indicators. Those indicators, you know, they've been. They're well known by the shipping industry. Uh, you have uh, they, they use, for instance, uh, in the Poseidon principle by investors for for years. So it's not like the new indicators, but we know that it's it's not also the only indicators that exist. Uh, uh, and uh, and what could say, for instance, that EEOI that are based on the real transport work of the vessels uh, could could be also valuable because then you really have the carbon footprint. Uh, of uh, a specific vessels, but as soon as you start uh, taking into account uh, the the real transport work, so the mass carried by the uh, the vessels, then you will have more fluctuation. More fluctuation in the data means also uh, more difficulty for to set the reference line and so on. So you you also enter into additional. Uh, uh, constraints. So I think there is no indicator that is, you know, really, really perfect. Uh, and we we should uh, look at the good things that that uh, have been brought by the introduction of CII. And I think this was highlighted both by Panos and Daniel. What we've seen is that we've seen companies that uh, have started to look at in much more details about the operational carbon intensity performance of the vessels. They have starting, you know, providing training to uh, uh, to their to the operators of the vessels. They're starting discussing with uh, their charters to try to include this parameter into uh, charter parties. So already it had, uh, uh, I think, a, a number of very positive effects. It doesn't mean that the indicator is perfect. And I think what Daniel said is is very true in, in in the sense that. Uh, gra more granularity is is probably needed uh, to understand, in fact, uh, the reasons why a CII might be lower or higher uh, than expected. And you could have cases where indeed the CII, uh, uh, the attend CII is poor because the ship is only doing very short trips. Uh, the the ship is using a lot of energy to, to maneuver within ports. And therefore, uh, these additional energy and emissions emitted uh, will not be compensated by a higher distance travel that you have in the denominator uh, of the of the formula. So I think the the, the IMO uh, has already agreed on on a, on a process to revise the CRI. We we need to go through that process. We need to collect data. We're speaking about an indicator. In, in the form of the CI that is, is pretty recent. And so we need to collect this uh, information. We need to collect 
I think, uh, additional, more granular information. And, and, and in that respect, the work that is being done uh, by Daniel in collecting more data to, to, to understand exactly, uh, uh, to try to correlate the CII value with, with other uh, data is, is, is very important. And then we'll be on safe ground to see how to, to improve the system. But uh, yeah, I would highlight, uh, and I think it's important to look at the positive aspects that uh, have been brought already by this, uh, this system. Thank you. Well, maybe Daniel, just, um, just to, to kind of put it quite bluntly. Um, so we've heard that there are positives to this sector, but we also heard criticisms. Um, the criticisms I've heard are that it doesn't reflect uh, the improvement in operational energy efficiency or that it favors ships sailing longer rather than shorter distances. Is the, the CII fit for purpose at the moment? Uh, that's a very tough question to be asked. <laughs> um, I think that uh, the CI is quite interesting. I mean, I wouldn't say yes or no uh, right now. I think that CI has, has a lot of potential, if you, if you think about it. Uh, um, I mean, the reason why we have the correction factors is to some extent is because the CI has the potential to be powerful in a way. That's the way that I take it. Uh, for example, everybody may, ha may affect the CII rating of a ship. Everybody, like all the actors that are around uh, transportation or trade by ships. So, for instance, you could have a, a cargo owner that wants, uh, <clears throat> wants their cargo to be delivered from port A to port B in, in, in two days, and that will mean like a very high speed. But then the ship owner and the ship charter will say, well, that might affect my CII. And then I have a clause with my ship owner about the CII. So uh, <clears throat> all the decisions that can be made around the ship can affect the CII. Uh, if, for instance, a charter wants to operate because there's a nice rate to go to a certain port, but then the charter also knows that, uh, and the owner knows that if going to that port could bring the CI to a high uh, E because of a tradition or a history in the particular port for the for waiting time, um, you know, again, this brings the topic to discussion. Well, if you're going to that port, that vessel, it means that you might have an E, and because of that, I may have to have a plan of proactive actions. So, I mean, ports, uh, cargo owners, the financiers, and you know, also financial institutions have been looking to the CII to understand if a vessel is good or not good. But the problem is that, uh, you know, you have, uh, you have some nuances. Uh, it covers, uh, the CII brings this discussion, yes. It, it, I would say that you will find vessels all over there that are well covered by the CII, that you can actually track for their true carbon intensity or precisely track for the, the, the environmental uh, aspect of that vessel uh, in, a, in a good way, but they also find vessels that are not uh, covered. And because of those situations, and one of them that was highlighted today, uh, like short voyages or waiting times, or because of specific cargos that require heating or specific cargos that require cooling, or, um, yeah, or other specific operational vessels, that has created this need for, uh, for correction factors or exclusions that we have now in the, in the formula. And um, so I think that it, it's fit for purpose in terms of bringing the, uh, the discussion to a higher level, to bring the uh, operational energy efficiency, operational carbon intensity to the discussion of everyday businesses. Um, it has brought, as we see through uh, projects that we are carrying here in the center, we have seen that uh, the CI has brought more awareness into the data, has 
uh, has brought more awareness to the training, has brought more awareness to energy efficiency, has brought more awareness about you know the discussions with cargo owners, charter, and so on. Has brought more awareness in terms of um, more monitoring systems to monitor fuel consumption, to monitor uh, vessel uh, voyage performance, and so on. So it, it is fit for purpose to that extent. But of course, there are things that are not truly well covered, and there might be perversive incentives there by the, because of the CII. What is important to track as we CII is in a learning phase. It has been alluded to here today that uh, there is a review process. Part of the review process is what we call like a lessons learned exercise that is to be undertaken uh, by collecting data and so on, is to understand if those perversive or those things that go a little bit better with the CII, how often does that, do, that appear? Uh, is it common practice or what is actually the CII uh, uh, bringing to the industry? But that's part of the review process of the IMO. Uh, so by 2026, uh, we need to understand what the CI is driving. We want to have a better understanding of what the CI is driving next year. Uh, why and here in the center with our partners or project partners? Why? Because we will have one year of CII already. This 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 year, 2023 is the first year of the CII. Next year, we're going to have a full year of DCS, a full year rating, and we're going to understand and know how the industry has been coping with that. But it's with the objective to try to really understand what are the good things that the CI actually brought, the bad things, and try to find ways of mitigating for the bad things. And that's the line of work that we have here in the center. We don't want to work with, here in the center, we, don't want to, we do not want to work with correction factors or exclusions, because from our perspective, all emissions matter. You need to regulate all emissions. You need to reduce all emissions. So we're trying to think in a way that uh, can we make the CII formula or the framework more holistic in terms of covering uh, better how different vessels operate, uh, different vessels are designed and, and so on, with acknowledging that um, we might not solve all the problems. Uh, by introducing a solution for something, we might create a small problem somewhere else. And that's some things that we need to track with data. We, need to, we are collecting data, as it was been alluded to by Timothy. Uh, and on the basis of the data, we are running calculations uh, to substantiate and to, to have our analysis uh, grounded on data. So, yeah, I think it's so to summarize, I think it's fit for the discussion to be raised, to have this uh, common ground of discussion. I think even having these sessions where people complain about the CII is good because then we get to hear more. What are the pain points? And what are the things that need to be adjusted uh, or, you know, thought through? Maybe for specific things, we need to other type of regulations to come into place. So um, it's fit for that kind of discussion. But of course, uh, it has some some things that need to be fixed. And then might, people might think, OK, then it's not fit for, for some things. But I, at least I like the discussion that the CIA is creating. That, that's, uh, that's a positive thing. <clears throat> Thank you. Well, um, Panos, I want to give you a chance to respond. But I'm also curious to learn more about the Environmental Defense Fund uh, idea of um, essentially restricting ships uh, entering EU ports if they have an E-grade. Um, I'd also be yeah, curious to learn more about this. Just one potential version of it. Um, you know, we're not wedded to uh, a, a draconian uh, way of um, applying the, the CII. Um, what we are um, shining some light on or putting the spotlight on um, 
is the, the issue with enforcement or lack of enforcement. Um, so we, we've spent some time just now talking about the shortcomings of, of CII, and that's, um, that's a good thing. But of course, you know, all policies need to be reviewed uh, periodically, improved. Uh, none of them are perfect. You know, just look across other areas of, um, of, of transport. It, it's very difficult to, to please everyone. And when it comes to CII, um, it's, it, it's transformative in its approach because it's, it's goal-based and it's holistic. It doesn't just look, and, and, and this is both, this explains both the criticisms and the, you know, the, the, the strong points or the advantages. It doesn't just look at what the vessel, uh, you know, the technical efficiency or even what the ship owner or operator um, can do. It looks at all the determinants, all the drivers of carbon intensity of, of the operation. And that includes uh, ports. Uh, it might even include um, the weather. Yeah. Um, so all these things need to be taken into account and, and optimized over time if we're going to achieve uh, a, an improvement in shipping's uh, climate performance. Um, so, so for me, you know, the elephant in the room with CII is not the the formula; it's the lack of enforcement. So on the one hand, um, you know, we, we are told by IMO that E is a failing grade and that D uh, can only, you can only have D for two years in a row, but, you know, there's no bite to the sanctions, to the, to, to not meeting um, that level of performance. And historically, the European Union has been really, really good at pushing the IMO and the rest of the global industry into really good measures that later on are, are recognized and celebrated by everyone. So, you know, we think that this also applies to CII and we want to see the EU push uh, at IMO when, when the review happens in 2026, but also between now and then. Um, there's nothing to say that we can't do more um, right now. And, and that's what the study that C. Delft did for us showed, um, that first of all, the ambition of today's, the existing reduction factors of CII uh, are potent. The A grade and the B grade are uh, equivalent to significant emissions reductions, assuming um, CII works, which I think we've, we've established it more or less does. So why aren't ports doing more? Why aren't states doing more to, um, to use it? You know, the IMO advises them to use it, right? They, they can use incentives, for example, and reduce uh, port dues. Um, this is an official recommendation by IMO. But, you know, I work for a nonprofit. I'm, I'm a bit more impatient with climate action. I want to see it um, sooner rather than later. So, so we think, based on what we've seen so far, that an actual um, mandate of some sort from the European Union um, would would really turbocharge CII. And yes, uh, port state control is a powerful mechanism. And, um, you know, we will have a, a next commission, um, next new parliament next year. 
and uh, and that's something that you know we think they can they can um, potentially um, take seriously. We already had a proposal from the European Commission to include the CII grades as part of the risk matrix uh, in in ship inspections, uh, and that was unfortunately it hasn't gone so well so far um some uh, a number of uh, epp lawmakers um, um saw it was uh, not the right way to go and and they've been successful so far in the transport committee of the european parliament but there's still i think um some space some potential to at least make that step uh, and, and anchor cii in the eu uh, framework um but yeah ideally we would um at some point like to see a requirement from the EU that would no doubt help to push the IMO debate um, as well. Well, Timothy, maybe I can ask you for your response uh, to the idea that there's a lack of enforcement, uh, particularly when it comes to failing grades in the climate label. I think the um, <clears throat> um, CII will, at the end of the day, uh, generate emissions reduction based on two criteria. The first criteria is indeed enforcement. If nothing happened to a vessel that is D for three consecutive years or is uh, E, if there is no uh, need for the vessel to define uh, a corrective and to implement a corrective action plan in order to improve the, its operational uh, carbon intensity requirements, then of course the effect uh, of uh, the policy measures will be much less than initially expected. That's one aspect. And the other aspect is the reduction factor because the CRI is not only about, you know, um, looking at the operational carbon intensity of a vessel, it's also trying to compare that actual value uh, to a target um, where we have each year an objective to reduce by a certain percentage the uh, average operational carbon intensity of the fleet. So uh, the, the, the ability of that measure to trigger re real emission savings uh, is indeed linked on the enforcement uh, uh, aspect and also on the, uh, the reduction factor that for the moment are only decided uh, until uh, 2026. So we still also will have important discussions to have at IMO to discuss about um, the level of ambitions that we want the CII policy to uh, achieve uh, towards 2030. Also taking in, in, in mind the indicative checkpoint that uh, uh, were agreed in the revised uh, strategy. Now, I mean, replying to uh, to Panos, uh, I would like to highlight, as I as I did in my introduction, the fact that a lot uh, is uh, currently ongoing in terms of climate policies at uh, EU level. With the Fit for 55 package, uh, the EU has adopted a number of policies to reduce emissions from the shipping sectors. And that's important because we believe the sectors needs to contribute to the overall decarbonization efforts uh, that uh, we are all contributing to uh, uh, in the EU. Uh, and, uh, and the focus is really at the moment to ensure that what has just been agreed is thoroughly being implemented and swiftly being implemented on the ground. 
but I, I, I see uh, possible synergies between CII and, and other climate policy. Uh, and um, what Panos mentioned is also correct. I mean, the Commission uh, typically proposed to take into account the CII values when calculating the risk profile linked to port state control inspection, meaning that uh, if your uh, ship uh, is performing badly in terms of CRI, then you might have a higher chance to be inspected in your port. That that's, is already uh, a proposal that was made uh, by the Commission and that is currently being discussed uh, by the, uh, the two uh, EU co-legislators. So they, 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 they could be uh, uh, synergies uh, in, in that respect and that's exactly uh, yeah, what IMO is pushing because IMO uh, is encouraging uh, administration, port authorities or, or different stakeholders to also give incentives to the ships that uh, are the best uh, rated in terms of CRI, which is also uh, a bit awkward not to have a transparent system um, if you want to incentivize the ships that uh, that are the, the best performing ones, because you first need to identify them. Thank you. Um, I would like to take some questions uh, from our viewers as well. Um, there's one here from Olaf Dreyer, a cross commodity trader at Utility, and the question is for Daniel. Um, it says, next to the EU area, are there other regions or hubs with policy, policy measures for cleaner shipping? What measures are they as opposed to ETS compliance and CII targets in EU? Um, for shipping specifically, um, I think there are discussions ongoing around the globe. Uh, I, I know that there has been a few submissions to the US, uh, in the US Congress about uh, policies around ships, uh, similarly to carbon pricing or fuel you and so on. I know that there is a there are consultations around the globe around policies from like in, in Australia as well. It's something that is ongoing. And um, but we also have some other policies that are kind of a, where shipping might be a a good collateral effect. <laughs> For instance, you have the Inflation Reduction Act in the U.S., which is uh, which is a way that we see uh, as I mean we see as a regulation that can promote the. Um, the availability, at least, of fuels uh, for shipping, uh, or e-fuels, or uh, for shipping, or blue fuels as well for shipping, and we've done a study here where uh, recently, where how you can leverage from both the Inflation Reduction Act in the U.S. and the ETS and the FUU in Europe, and make this hub of green shipping around U.S. and EU. So our studies have shown, for instance, if you couple these two things, of course, Inflation Reduction Act is not targeted to shipping directly, but will produce, allow the fuel to be there uh, at a cheaper level, that uh, if you could combine uh, both the carrot from the Inflation Reduction Act with the stick, uh, or sometimes not so much the stick, but uh, in the EU, you could get actually a valuable business case uh, in this area uh, for green shipping. So um, those are the two things I would like to to, to highlight. Uh, but there are things, uh, you know, being developed or discussed around the globe. Uh, and the expectation is that as soon as the IMO comes up with something that is uh, international, global, uh, as a regulation like ETS or a carbon pricing or GEG pricing or, or a GEG standard, 
that the need for local legislation to for shipping might uh, might fall in a way or not, not be there. Um, and if I may, I just wanted to react to the discussion before. I mean, enforcement. If I may quickly, I think there. The, I just want to bring the the idea that the enforcement might take different ways. Uh, you know, uh, the CII is, is is doesn't go alone. The CII goes with Ship Energy Efficiency Management Plan. Uh, I think Timothy alluded to the plan that you need to put. Like, you need to have a plan on how you're going to comply with CII. So that plan goes in this in the SEMP, what we call Ship Energy Efficiency Management Plan. And then there could be ways that we could achieve a higher enforcement of the CI by looking at the quality of the SEMP, in a way. How good that plan is. You know, if you put a plan of, I'm going to do this, this, and that to, in order to achieve a good CII, a good quality check is to see if the SEMP has been actually implemented, uh, like through audits uh, of the SEMP and so on and so forth. So just to highlight that, you know, we could think about uh, enforcement that will go via restricting ships operation or re not renewing uh, uh, certificates. That could be a quite uh, harsh enforcement, but uh, there could be other ways of enforcing the CII by, you know, auditing the SEMP, for instance, in a better way or having more restrictions around how the, the SEMP is actually being fulfilled in order to achieve a good CII rating. Just, just a thought I would like to bring to the discussion. But, um, Thank you very much indeed. Um, we have another question here from uh, Sophie Dayon from the Global Maritime Forum. Um, an important dimension in the July revised IMO strategy is the inclusion of life cycle emissions well to wake in the new ambition. What are the speaker's expectations and insights on the upcoming guidelines on life cycle emissions planned at IMO MEP C81? Um, Panos, I'm not sure if this is something you would like to come in on. Um, well, we are, at Environmental Defense Fund, generally speaking, we are very supportive of taking a well-to-wake approach to the impact of um, all marine fuels, and especially the alternative ones that um, will obviously will, will need to be assessed um, um, to be rewarded for the savings they have upstream. Um, and, and also that um, you know the, the guidelines at IMO need to be in line with the latest science and um, and that can that can be um, a long and, and bumpy road so that's why we contribute a lot to, to that work um, but yeah not not the um, not directly uh, related to CII in its current form yeah. thank you uh, would either of our other speakers like to come on come into this um, Timothy, perhaps? Yes, um, all, all the, the work that is being done on life cycle analysis, LCA, is, is extremely important. And uh, the importance of well-to-wake emissions uh, has also been acknowledged in the revised GAG strategy. And that's important because the, the end goal is not, you know, just to displace emissions that are taking place in the sector to other um, sectors. So you could have a ship that is from a, a tank to wake basis, not emitting any emissions, but if in order to uh, produce the fuel used on board that vessels, you are emitting a lot, then at the end of the day, you're just displacing emissions from the shipping sector to uh, an inland sector. And that's not what we're aiming at. The objective is at the end of the day, to reduce the quantity of 
greenhouse gas emissions that will be released in the atmosphere. Um, and, and, and this is uh, an aspect that is very uh, important. The Commission is directly contributing to the development of the uh, LCA uh, guidance, which should continue being a scientific uh, document reflecting uh, all the best knowledge that we have uh, on uh, those life cycle uh, aspects. And there is also the question of, in terms of reflecting about uh, revision of, uh, of CII, is, is also something that, that could also be uh, a put on the table uh, uh, when discussing about the review is 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 also the, uh, the the possibility for the CRI to also encompass uh, the, the full life cycle chain so well to wake uh, emissions but that's it's particularly important well to wake emissions when in order to promote the right type of alternative fuels thank you and daniel um, any thoughts on the idea of uh, using well to wake in the new ambition I think uh, what wake vision is very important. I mean, I can only highlight the points that uh, Timothy just uh, put forward and also Panos. Um, it's hard to add something. I mean, the only thing that I would like to add to the discussion is that the the role of precedence in a way in policy making. I think that the LCA uh, guidelines that are being discussed in IMO, they are, they are taking a very good shape. Uh, and um, uh, I think that it's becoming a very comprehensive tool to measure the well-to-wake uh, emission intensity of fuels. And it can, in my vision, it could only happen like this because of precedent work that happened. And one of the big policies that were there before the uh, IMLCA guidelines was the uh, Renewable Energy Directive uh, with the um, NLCA calculation methodology and certification schemes and all of those things into place. So I just, I mean, the only point is yes, yes. It's a very important debate to, to be held. Uh, it's, uh, the well-to-wake emissions is very important that we promote the right fuels and the well-to-wake visions they, they want to have. And, and I think it, uh, you know, uh, precedence from the EU having worked on that was quite important for the IMO to achieve what it has achieved right now. And the same applies, I think, I would say for, you know, the discussion we had earlier, UMRV. I hope that the UMRV granularity, the UMRV um, uh, transparency could be used as better, I mean, could be used as an example of precedence of to make IMO move in the same direction as well. So that's the only point I would like to add. Thank you very much. Um, I just would like to get back to the topic of um, enforcement, which we've discussed quite a bit. Um, Panos, maybe a question for you. So, I mean, you've said that uh, the EU could take more action here. It doesn't have to be draconian, I believe you said, but they can take more action. The only question is, if the EU does decide to act using the CII, perhaps having restrictions or some other measure, is there a chance that we would see uh, international backlash? I know that in aviation, for example, if the EU acts uh, unilaterally, oftentimes they face criticism from other partners. What's the chance that we would see international backlash to such a move? Thank you, Sean. That's an excellent question. Um, well, first of all, I think you know we've we've come a long way since um, uh, a decade ago, and um, the um, all that drama for those who remember it around stop the clock in in aviation. Um, and I think uh, uh, this is demonstrated by the fact that the EU is now taking decisive action on shipping by extending EU ETS to shipping and international um, shipping, right? 
um, because emissions uh, are, are related to EU trade. So it's understandable that the EU would try to um, you know, request uh, emissions allowances for some part of those. Um, I think had this happened maybe a decade ago, we would have seen a backlash, uh, but there's now a wider global understanding of, of where things are going. Um, so frankly, you know, I, I, I don't see it when it comes to, I don't see that risk. I mean, and when it comes to CII, um, don't forget that the measure itself is a global one to begin with. So CII was developed um, by the IMO and endorsed by its 175 states. It can be really tricky starting from scratch with a blank sheet of paper with all the conflicting commercial interests um, and different uh, types of uh, shipping operations to arrive at a commonly agreed um, scheme like this one. So the fact that it exists is a major asset. Uh, and I really think that if countries and regions uh, did more, both with carrots and sticks, um, they would face uh, a lower risk of, um, of, of a backlash because this is a measure that the other countries have um, endorsed as well. And, and don't forget that um, you know, through its link to efficiency, um, it's also saving ship owners and charters ultimately uh, money that they would be spending on on fuel so it's it's really to me it, it's a no-brainer um to do more with uh, on on cii um, I, I could add a complication uh <laughs> sure, i suppose just because it just hasn't come up so far um you know pricing also incentivizes so carbon pricing also incentivizes efficiency investments and, and cleaner operations. But shipping is complicated and there are market barriers um, that, that mean that it will take some time for carbon pricing to comprehensively make that push and have that direct effect um, on, on, on greener, on, on energy efficiency. The advantage of CII, and these are not alternatives, right? They're in perfect synergy. Um, you could use CII as a way to, to, to gauge also how well your other carbon reduction policies are going. Um, but the advantage of CII is that it's more directly linked um, to the, the efficiency uh, of the ship. There's no way with, with carbon pricing, um, you could always choose to pay more, let's say, um and run a less efficient operation if you had a cii requirement you can't really do that that's an interesting point um timothy i want to give you a chance to respond um firstly i mean pano said that there's now a wider global understanding uh, which means that there's a, a lower risk uh, of a backlash if the eu was to put in place enforcement measures um do you agree with that i think uh, uh Panos also um, highlighted the situation uh, that occurred with the implementation of the Fit for 55 package. Um, it's, it's clear that from our point of view, climate change is, of course, a global issue. So if we agree uh, on ambitious 
global response at global level at IMO, this is preferable. And this is our objective, and we are fully committed uh, as the EU to contribute to, uh, you know, uh, reaching the, the best possible uh, measures uh, at global level in order to address uh, the very severe uh, issue of uh, climate change. Uh, but uh, what the EU has shown over the, the, the last years is that uh, if those ambitious measures are not putting in place at global level, then uh, it's the role uh, of the EU to push the bar higher and uh, to act. Uh, and, and we know that uh, by experience that, that these often also accelerate the debate at global level. So I, I, I don't think that we should be you know, uh, opposing actions at EU level with, uh, with actions done by other countries or uh, at, uh, at global level. Thank you. Uh, Daniel, uh, what are your thoughts on, on the EU taking action here if others don't? I mean, it's, it just highlights the point that I made before. I think uh, EU taking action, I think, sets precedence, uh, shows how it can work, how it can be done, and so on. And that facilitates the debate because it prepares, of course, EU to go to a, to a debate at IMO, but also shows that, uh, you know, it can be done. I think um, for the industry as a whole, I mean, the carbon pricing that we have, the ETS, and the TV for maritime, it's good because the industry is, is, is getting ready for a potential future where the meter measures will be likely similar to what we have the EU and so on. On the point of what the the, um, the complication point that was raised by Panos, I can uh, I can agree with Panos that uh, shipping is complicated. Uh, we have multiple types of business cases. Uh, we have from the we have the ship owners that are ship operators and they sell their own services. We have the purely ship owners. Uh, we have the, the, the cargo owners have bare boat charter agreements. Uh, I mean, the, the charters have bare boat charter agreements so that they can control most of the ship, those who are like on the spot market. So, um, yeah, shipping can be quite complicated on the business arrangements that, that, are, that, are, that are there in the industry. So a carbon pricing does not necessarily, I mean, I'm, I'm inclined to think, even though uh, it's, uh, it's an ongoing a study here in the center, I'm inclined to think that the carbon pricing will push for energy efficiency in some cases, but in some other cases it may not. So I think I, 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 I kind of just want to highlight the idea that Pablo suggested there as well in the end. But um, yeah, I would like to see the all the work that is being done on the few EU and on ETS has been quite positive to raise again the debate uh, to show to the, so that the industry can use these two schemes so that they can get used with the idea of a carbon pricing mechanism, of transferring costs, of making new business decisions based on what the carbon pricing looks like. Uh, and on the same, like a few you, like an industry getting ready for the few you, like new choices of fuel, what are the fuels they need to buy in the future, having these need to long-term visibility or long-term planning for if I want to build a ship now and then I want this ship to sail in Europe, then it means that in 2045, we're going to have this GG intensity reduction. So what fuel can I use then? So, I mean, this mindset uh, that is created because of the policy making EU is good uh, to prepare the industry as well for the, for the IMO when they come with, and they will come. There's a commitment from IMO to come with midterm measures by 2027. I mean, enforced by 2027. So this will come. So it's uh, the EU is setting a good precedence for, I mean, for policy making, but also for the industry to get ready for that when it comes.
but uh, that's um, my compliment, uh, comment, complimentary comment. Thank you very much indeed. Um, well, looking at the time, we are coming towards the end of our session. I do want to give each of you a chance to give your final remarks. Maybe we can take one last question from uh, the viewers before we go. It's for Timothy. Um, it's from uh, Eric Schreiner. Um, it says, how do you assess the impact of e-fuels derived from the utilization of captured CO2 for the decarbonization of the maritime sector? And that's to Timothy. So, I mean, f fuels that um, are not coming from uh, biological origin. Uh, so basically, you have two types of uh, e-fuels. You, you can have the ones that are uh, produce uh, using biomass and that are of biological origin. Then you have the ones that are uh, coming not from biological origin. Those those fuels could um, that that possibly use a carbon molecule that has been captured from uh, an industrial process, for instance. They could uh, have a role to play uh, in the future. Um, but what is important is to look again at the overall uh, life cycle uh, aspect and, and typically to ensure uh, that uh, overall we do not uh, uh, increase uh, and, and that we do not basically double incentivize uh, this type of fuel uh, in case, for instance, uh, carbon pricing uh, is is not applied both at the level of the usage of the fuel and also at the use at the the, the production uh, of the fuel, so RFNBOs um, have clearly uh, an important role to play, and we we have uh, policies uh, in place to support uh, uh, their uptake uh, and. Uh, and, and also because we know that uh, alternative fuel uh, based on, on uh, biomass uh, are limited in terms of um, availability uh, in comparison to typically RFNBOs. So they, 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 they are already policies in place that are um, uh, included typically in the fuel EU maritime uh, regulation or in the red to also uh, support uh, sustainable uh, renewal fuel of non-biological uh, uh, origin. Uh, but in, important to keep in mind that uh, the origin of the carbon molecule in such a case uh, is, is, uh, is of key importance. Thank you very much. Well, we are coming to the end of our conference, uh, but before we go, I would like to ask each of our panelists to give um, a one-sentence uh, summation of the key takeaway message. Um, Daniel, perhaps I can ask uh, you to start with your, your one-sentence summation, please. <laughs> you didn't give a lot of time to think. Um, uh, I, I think it was a great discussion. Um, to me, it shows that... Um, there's a need, or there's a, at least around these uh, the panelists here, a need to 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 work uh, to push further IMO and uh, policy making for decarbonization shipping. And I think we I got some ideas also or, or confirmations that uh, at least we need to to continue pushing. So uh, I think it was a good debate and uh, to bring awareness as well and then new thoughts on the table. So 
I just want to thank for for the for the opportunity opportunity to participate here today. Thank you very Quick much one. indeed, um, Timothy. Uh, your uh, final remarks, please. Yeah, um, I also would like to thank the, the other panelists for the very good discussion. I think all this discussion around CII, um, they highlight an important aspect uh, is that in order to decarbonize the sectors, we will have to rely on alternative fuels, that's for sure, but we'll also have to increase energy efficiency of vessels. Um, and in that respect, energy efficiency can be achieved through technical improvements, through better designed vessels, but also through more energy efficient operational behaviors. And, and that's a key aspect that is captured uh, in the uh, operational uh, carbon intensity indicators that are CII. And, and it's, it's important uh, also to, to keep that dimension in mind because alternative fuels will remain more expensive and, 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 and scarce. And that's why the, it's very important to, to, to keep high in these discussions around decarbonization, the need for improved energy efficiency. Thank you very much. And uh, Panos, your final thoughts, please. Yeah, um, so I also think um, similarly, that as we head into a um, new world of alternative fuels, um, a lot of them, the truly sustainable ones, will be much more expensive. Um, they will be expensive in terms of cost and money, as well as energy. So it's really, really important that shipping makes a, a big push on energy efficiency right now. And as next year, the focus of everyone shifts towards um, IMO and, uh, and the basket of measures, the carbon pricing and, um, and the fuel standard, it's um, really important that we don't forget about CII. And specifically, I think that goes to the European Union, who can be a real champion of CII and, and energy efficiency, who can push for um, a strong review of CII and can also, um, you know, not waste any time and uh, uh, whether as a group or also individual states and ports can uh, can do lots already to promote uh, more efficient vessels. Thank you very much. Well, that brings us to the close of today's conference, but I would like to thank all of our panelists for their excellent contributions today. Um, thank you to the Environmental Defense Fund for supporting today's debate. And of course, thank you to you, the viewers, for joining us. Um, well, that's all from the Reactive Studio here in Brussels for now. But in the meantime, take care, stay safe, and we'll see you next time.